This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Here's something that, uh, well, you and I have been discussing for quite some time. Technically, I guess, since the Red Hill uh, Expressway opened a number of years ago, and that's about the safety on that road. And, and to a lesser extent on the link, but there have been fatalities on the link. But there, there seems to be something about the Red Hills. Uh, the, the concerns that have been raised over the last little while are about the design of the road itself, the composition of the the material that the road is made of has been a very contentious issue. And then, of course, there's the idea of public safety. Well, uh, Public Works Committee will receive a report today that talks about some of the things that have been proposed, including putting barriers up. Spoiler alert, the uh, committee or the uh, report recommends not doing that at this stage. But they're also going to do some exploration about the uh, the composition of the road itself. Joining us to give us an overview on this uh, report and the implications, Dan McKinnon, who is, of course, the manager of public works for the city of Hamilton. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Dan, good morning. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Bill. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what's uh, going to be in this report. This is actually pretty wide-ranging. and I'll talk about the composition of the, uh, uh, the asphalt, I guess, that we're using here, because I know that there's a particular focus on that. But some of the other safety issues that uh, Public uh, Works has been dealing with over the last little while, Dan, including a number of public delegations that were asking for things. Have you done the assessment on all of those? So the report that's going before Public Works Committee today is a little more comprehensive report over the last year, year and a half. There's been a variety of questions that committee and council have had about the Red Hill Expressway. And uh, so we were you know, working on each one of those things individually. We thought we would bring it all back in a comprehensive report to try to address all of it. When the concerns and questions about the safety on the Red Hill started to emerge over the last couple of years, a consulting engineering firm was uh, uh, obtained to, to come in and, and have a look at the uh, the Red Hill. They produced a report a few years ago with a number of recommendations. We've been working towards implementing those recommendations. And so I would say what today is is really just a, an update on a lot of the work that has been ongoing and then any new uh, pieces of work that we felt uh, needed to be uh, put on the table and just brought forward the committee in a comprehensive way. Do uh, uh, does does the report deal specifically with some of those requests? Uh, and, and let's focus particularly on on the idea of barriers between the the, the roadways, uh, which is something that many people have been talking about over the last number of years. Yeah, it does talk about the barriers, and as you mentioned, the uh, the barriers we're not recommending putting them in at the moment. Um, one of the things that you know intuitively. Uh, the, the, People will understand that the barriers will stop crossover um, collisions. There's no question about that. But uh, in, in road traffic design, uh, the width of the median in between also provides the same kind of uh, same kind of attenuation of those types of incidents. Obviously, not to the with 100% certainty, but there's always trade-offs. Whenever you put any kind of infrastructure in place, there's trade-offs. Um, so when you put barriers up, you do create other uh, situations that may occur. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't think it's uh, it's unreasonable to expect that for um, you know the the general public to think that that's going to be better than having crossover collisions, and and it would be. Um, but the there's other things that we weigh in that as we go along as well. And uh, one of the things that we're looking at is down the road we will have to likely add another lane to the uh, to each direction on the Red Hill, and likely the Lincoln. It's at that point that it would be more appropriate to put in the barriers at that time. So you're not saying no, you're just saying not yet. Exactly. Uh, because the statistics, and, and we can have this discussion about statistics until the cows come home, I guess, here, Dan. 
you can you can you know twist them and turn them any way you want. And and I understand that according to what uh, your uh, your engineers, your consultants have said here, that the number of crossover accidents uh, slash head-on collisions is really a very small portion of the number of, of collisions that occur on those roadways. Uh, you can read that either way you want, but the fact is is that when one of them does occur, there's a 50-50 chance of fatalities, which would send tend to send a message to me that there's, there's a sense of urgency here. Well, there's no question, and I'm not a traffic engineer by, uh, by training, but uh, uh, I can tell you that there's been a, a lot of scrutiny and a lot of analysis on this piece of roadway, and I think one of the things that you know maybe we can do a better job of is just trying to uh, demonstrate context. So uh, in context of other... Um, freeway sections around the province that are similar to this one, our numbers are not excessive. As, as a matter of fact, I think they're a little bit on the low side. That doesn't bring any comfort to anybody who has had a loved one either injured or killed in those situations, and we, we are certainly sensitive to that. But that really just, I think, highlights you know what traffic engineering is all about. It's all about trying to avoid collisions and trying to minimize injury and death with the design of our roadways. So in the context of, you know, um, say provincially and, and other uh, uh, freeways that are similar to this, the numbers, they're not out of whack. And um, But again, that doesn't mean we shouldn't continue to look at it and continue to analyze and, and figure out better uh, ways to make it more safe. One of the things that was frustrating, and I'm not pointing the finger here at any individual or group for that matter, but I'm just telling you the feedback I get when we have this discussion on our show over the last couple of years now, Dan, is, is the frustration that many people are feeling that, that council and some of the consultants that were, were hired to, to look at some of this stuff seem to be focusing and spending an awful lot of time talking about driver behavior on these roads as opposed to the design and the composition of the roads themselves. And, and I guess the frustration here is if you're going to talk about bad drivers and, and the impact they're going to have, uh, you could have that discussion about just about every road in the city. I mean, that's, that's a behavioral thing, and it's, it's not exclusive to these roadways, but the design of the roadways is exclusive to them. Yeah, that's, you know, I, I appreciate that, that sentiment. It is, it is a tough argument. Um, you know, driver behavior is one of the root causes of a lot of these accidents. I mean, when you get out on a roadway that's wide, we know kind of from a psychological perspective, the wider you make a traveled lane in a roadway, the faster people are going to drive. And um, so the, uh, the limits that we put on are, are there, obviously, for a reason. And some of the extraordinarily excessive driver behavior on these roads is, is, is really... You know, there's 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 uh, enforcement that you can undertake through the police services, and then there's there's other tactics that you can take. But there's there's trade-offs with that as well. I mean, you know, I, I don't think anybody would find it appropriate to reduce the speed limit there to, to 50 or 60 kilometers an hour. And uh, you know, and the, the kind of the converse of that is you wouldn't expect anybody to be doing 160 kilometers an hour down Mohawk Road. So it it, it is complex, and and um, you know, I. I, I I wish that we had a better message for some of the folks who have uh, been adversely affected by the accidents that have happened along there. Um, but I can tell you there's been a tremendous amount of attention and effort gone to this, and, and we are going to continue to make the recommendations that we think are most appropriate in the circumstances. Let me ask you about the composition of the road itself, and again, a contentious issue. And I, I can remember having a discussion with some city staff members. Uh, this is like days before the, the Red Hill portion of, of this project opened. Uh, and we got a bit of a sneak preview as to what was going on. And uh, they talked, and, and we're very proud of of this the composition of the road, that it wasn't like most other roads. This was cutting-edge stuff, state-of-the-art stuff at the time. Uh, and I thought, well, that's great. You know, it's, it's good to know that the latest technologies are being used here. 
But the, the, that very composition of the roads has been called into question as possibly a factor in some of the accidents or collisions that have occurred. Could you give us a little background on, on what this stuff is and, and why questions are being raised? Um, so the the uh, composition of the road, Hamilton was an early adopter of something called perpetual pavement uh, at the time when the Red Hill was open. I don't know if there was any other municipality, maybe one, that had used what we call perpetual pavement. And essentially what it is is that it's extra thick asphalt with a number of base layers to it. And generally what happens over the life of a road structure is that it can either crack from the bottom up or from the top down. Um, cracking from the top down is something that you can rectify relatively um, easily, I will say, in that you can grind it off, you can grind 40 or 50 millimeters off the top and replace it, and that's the riding course of the asphalt. When you start to get in more to more expensive repairs is when you start to see uh, cracking happen from the bottom up. So this pavement structure that's on the Red Hill has... Uh, a coarser um, aggregate in the base, and it's got a deeper base, so the, the thickness of the asphalt on the Red Hill is thicker than it is on the uh, link. And um, so the idea was that over the years, you would just have to keep shaving off the top and replacing the top, and the base would last much longer than the traditional pavement. So I think that was the, the emphasis of the, the, the specification that was embraced at the time, was to have this perpetual pavement. What we are seeing right now is from the from the moment the Red Hill opened, the traffic counts have been higher than what was forecast. So, not unlike um, you know the mileage that you put on a car, the, the more mileage you put on a car, faster, the more maintenance you have to do, and that kind of thing. So, the work that's proposed for the Red Hill over the next uh, year or two is to uh, replace that surface course. We want to make sure we're starting to see a bit of surface cracking in the surface course. So we want to replace that before it gets too bad so that we can protect that bottom base layer because we don't want to have to touch that for a long time. So in hindsight, uh, which is always 2020, of course, uh, was the wrong stuff used? I mean, was that a bad choice? No, no, I think it's exactly the right choice. Um, I think that the, um, you know, the fact that we're going to be in there a little sooner than we anticipated really directs more to the fact that we're seeing a lot more traffic on there than they originally anticipated. So, so, and that's going to be ongoing work, and I guess you'll talk about that and, and the impact it's going to have. Uh, we all remember when uh, when the link was repaved a couple of years ago, resurfaced, and uh, the the impact that had on, on traffic right across the city uh, because of the uh, the closures that occurred. But, but that's, that's a, an apples and oranges thing. We'll get to that a little bit later on. The overriding question, though, Dan, and I know it's going to come up at the meeting today, and it's certainly going to come up on this program over the next couple of weeks, is this road as safe as it can be? And I know that can be a very subjective point of view sometimes, but the reality here is that uh, there are a lot more people on the road than was anticipated. There are a lot more collisions happening and more fatalities than, than we had anticipated, I think, when we did traffic counts on this. And uh, I guess what they're looking for right now, meaning members of the public, is is the city doing everything possible to try to mitigate those those possibilities? Well, the definition of safety is an interesting uh, kind of idea, and I don't want your listeners to think I'm you know, trying to do some double talk here, but the reality is if you put an 8-foot-high concrete wall down both sides of the road and you slowed it down to 50 kilometers an hour, would it be safer than it is today? I guess it might be, but we have to do what's reasonable in the circumstances, and, and following the long-standing, well-proven traffic design engineering that's, that's ever-evolving, but those are the guidelines and those are the kind of the, the formulas and the equations that we look to to guide us with all of our all of our transportation planning and design. And um, so based on that, the, the answer is yes. Um, could, you know, you could always make things safer, I guess, but at, uh, 
at what cost to, you know, the speed limits and, and just the capital cost of these types of things. You have to find that, that, uh, that happy balance in between. And, uh, you know, I, at the end of the day, uh, no loss of life is acceptable. Uh, but we know that, that uh, when people travel at high rates of speed and, and maybe they're uh, maybe going faster than they should or other things are going on, that that's going to happen from time to time. It's not acceptable. And I can tell you that uh, the traffic engineering group in our in our section is always has uh, uh, on their mind and their hearts uh, the the people that have lost loved ones along there. But we do have to follow the uh, the engineering, and that's that's what we're doing our best to do. But where's the tipping point then? I mean, I can remember when I was just a little kid uh, going to Toronto on the Queen Elizabeth Highway with my dad's car, and there were no barriers there between the eastbound and westbound traffic. Uh, there was just a grass median. That's there is on some of these roadways. And at some point, somebody made the decision that, you know something, this is a deadly situation. And they put those barriers in, and obviously there are no head-on collisions anymore as a result. We've seen this happen on other roadways. Now, I know the report here is saying inevitably that's probably going to happen. But uh, I'll tell you, if there's another collision, if there's another fatality on this, people are going to have said, why are you waiting until you actually expand this road? Does public safety not supersede cost? Well, let me just propose a different example, I guess. So right now there are probably on a regular basis people who go off the road and go into the grass boulevard between the northbound and the southbound lanes, and we may never even hear about it, or there may be an accident report and and whatnot. But if, if you stop that from happening and you put a barrier there, and now they hit the barrier, and then they may go back into the existing lanes of traffic, that could actually create a worse situation than if, than if they'd have just come to a stop in the, in the grass median. And those are things that are difficult for us to quantify because sometimes those, those things aren't even reported. So every action that you take is going to have some kind of a reaction. And those are the things that the traffic engineering body of knowledge and science looks at to, make, to, to try to make the best decisions. So, so I think this, this notion, and I understand why people believe that just putting up a barrier is going to be a, kind of a panacea and it's going to solve all the problems. What they may not appreciate is that there's a lot of people who do go off the road and come to a safe stop in that grass median currently. If you're going to put up a barrier and you're going to, you're going to force them back into the lane at, at, you know, God only knows what angle, that could, that's going to create a different accident. It's going to look different. It's not going to be a head-on, but it's going to be a different accident that we're going to be starting to see. So, um, so I, I think when you consider all of that, you have to rely on the science and the engineering to tell us what's the best options in any given uh, situation. Should be an interesting discussion and debate at the uh, the committee meeting. Dan, thanks as always. Appreciate the time today. My pleasure, Bill. Dan McKinnon, who is, of course, the uh, manager of public works for the city of Hamilton. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. City transit managers say that Hamilton may have to abandon bus tickets and uh, actually pay more to use the Presto tap cards that uh, have become very popular in other communities, and and to a certain extent even here in Hamilton for that matter. Uh, It's all tied into provincial grants and and improved transit. Uh, I use the word guardedly, improved transit. Uh, But the impact that it could have on some of the people that do rely on transit here could be monumental. Joining us to talk about this is Chad Collins, City Councilor for Ward 5 at the East End uh, here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Good morning, Chad. How are you this morning? I'm doing well, Bill. Yourself? Good, good. Let's give a little background and some context to this. This is a the idea of the Presto card and and uh, the 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 one access point to transit right across the uh, the southern Ontario area is not a new concept. I can remember going to a press conference. I think it was back in two thousand four mm-hmm. at uh, Union Station in Toronto when they announced this. The government of the day announced this and it sounded like a fabulous idea. 
Uh, it's been a little slow in being implemented and apparently a lot more costly than they thought it was going to be. It was, and, I, and it is, and I don't think anyone envisioned back in those days when it was first announced, first in Toronto, and then, as you noted, it migrated here to, to Hamilton. I think we started um, the citywide uh, Presto system back in 2011. Um, so, you know, it, it's been around for a while, and, and certainly, as has been covered extensively over the years, um, you know, there are a lot of technological uh, bugs associated with the system, and you'll still find from time to time, especially in the GTA, you know, stories, uh, you know, in the paper and, and on the radio that talk about some of the problems that have plagued Metrolinks and the Presto system. And so not off to a good start. And uh, when implemented here, uh, it was met with little fanfare. Uh, you know, our, our, our uh, transit community was accustomed to using passes, bus tickets, and certainly the cash system. And so it's been a struggle and a challenge to get people to convert and ma- migrate uh, to that system. We, we are one of the lowest users in, in the region. I think the last update we had a year or two ago, we were around 21% in terms of transit users that are using Presto. Other communities were in the 30 to 60% range as you get closer to downtown Toronto. And um, and we've migrated up to about 25%, which really isn't um, uh, you know a, a dramatic or drastic increase. And, and the province, through Metrolinx, and it is an arm's length organization that's governed by the, the province. Um, you know, they're, they're pushing municipalities to use the card more often. They will be expanding, as we'll hear this morning in Public Works. They'll be expanding the number of locations uh, that they offer it. Uh, right now, there's very you know limited areas within the city where you can load a card. And uh, they'll be uh, installing those machines, if again approved today, um, through the Loblaws chains, through Shoppers Drug Mart and, and other locations. And so that... Um, you know, the push is to, to have everybody using the same system. And, and the fear is, to an extent, and you mentioned the bus tickets, and we can certainly talk about that, but, you know, there have been reports over the last couple of years that Metrolinx would like to see fare harmonization. And our fares are some of the lowest in the province right now for a reason. Um, you know, our demographic is certainly a lot different than, than Toronto in terms of those who are using the bus. Primarily, we have a lot of seniors and students. And um, and so our, our fares, although they've maybe increased, you know, I think two times in the last 10 years, maybe three times, um, they're still uh, relatively inexpensive compared to other municipalities. And so the fear is that, the, you know, Metrolinx, again, through public consultation over the last couple of years, is trying to get Hamilton into a fare structure that's comparable to other GTA municipalities. And through that process and, and through their conditions that they set on receiving provincial gas tax uh, are, are trying to um, harmonize not just the fare structure, but how people get on the bus and, and pay for that. And, and that means getting rid of the bus tickets and getting rid of, I believe, if I read the report correctly, um, also getting rid of the, the, uh, the passes that we distribute, But although I have questions around that at this time. This has got to be a sense of deja vu for you, Chad. You were on the, the, the new city council back around the, the 2000s, the early 2000s, uh, mm-hmm. when they started talking about harmonizing things like wages and harmonizing costs. Uh, which sounded wonderful in a, a hypothetical situation, but what that basically means is that it all gravitates to the highest level. Uh, and, and yep. you know, Metrolinx is not going to come and, and to say to Toronto or to Mississauga, you guys should lower your rates to where Hamilton's are. They're going to come at you from the other way. Yeah. It's definitely going up if that's where we're headed with them. And I think, you know, it speaks to the whole issue of governance. Uh, you know, it, we're, it, it is a local, municipally run and owned and operated transit system. And so now for the province to tie, you know, to, to tie strings to their funding, st- 
streams to municipalities by inserting themselves into the governance issues associated with transit, I think is a slippery slope. And um, it is, as I mentioned in the paper, it's a form of political blackmail to say, you know, either conform to some of the local transit policies we want to see implemented, or you don't receive our funding. And, and that uh, we, we certainly haven't seen that in, in, in any area, whether it be with the federal government or the provincial government in the past. There are certainly guidelines at times when there are capital programs that are distributed. You, you know, you need to undertake the necessary approval process. There are deadlines in terms of time, in terms of how, how quick you need to construct some of these things when capital grants are provided. But now we're into operational issues, and these are traditionally issues that municipalities have dealt with with their residents. And the last time we even talked about and hinted that we were doing away with the bus tickets and and possibly passes on the horizon, there was tremendous tremendous feedback from our users that 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 is a um, you know a system that they want to keep in place. And I and there's no doubt in my mind, Bill, that you know as time passes, we we look at millennials and and you know what they're used to and accustomed to versus what we've been used to over the last couple of decades. And you know e transfers and uh, PayPal and all the different ways that someone can pay for goods and services has dramatically and drastically changed just in the last couple of years. And so I, I have no doubt in my mind that as time passes, we'll see less people, uh, the older generations who've been traditionally using our transit system, um, using the, 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 the past um, offerings that have been made available to them as it relates to, to payment. And I think millennials and the generation that follows them will, will certainly gravitate to, you know, to, to new modern technology. And, but there, you know, there's there's a gap there, and it needs to be a process that's in tune and in concert with with our transit users. And uh, although we haven't been on for public consultation, certainly the feedback that I've received in, in you know just the last couple of days from a limited number of constituents is that uh, they're satisfied with all the options and ranges that we have, and um, are hoping that the city will see fit and 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 find a way to keep those in place for a period of time. Well, and that may well be, you know, because of the financial elements to this, too, and you've touched on those a second ago. Uh, We've talked with a number of different social service agencies here that actually pass out tickets. Correct. Uh, Some employers do that. And uh, if you're to follow the Metrolinks uh, model that they're talking about here, Chad, Mm -hmm. uh, what option do they have? There won't be tickets to to pass out anymore. What are they going to do, top off your Presto card? Yeah, and that's a... That's a great question, and I and I think that um, our staff hinted in the report that other municipalities are finding ways or have found ways to try to help the social uh, service industry and organizations that that help people in need. And uh, and I'm not certain what the answers are there. That'll be certainly a question. I think a topic of discussion this morning. And and in the background and con and and uh, you know as part of this whole discussion, the cost of us paying for the Presto system is dramatically increased. So last year you covered this story through our budget process when we received a surprise letter from Presto stating that, you know, it'll cost the city a couple hundred thousand dollars more a year just to be a partner in this process. And and now we're looking at, um, you know, costs going up from about, I think we're between four and five hundred thousand dollars a year now as a municipality that pays into the Presto system. Uh, they're, they're trying to get us to four million dollar annual contribution by 2027. So that's a almost a ten time, tenfold increase um in terms of what the city is required to pay as a partner uh, for this system. And there's, as highlighted in the report, if we don't meet certain ridership numbers, um, you know, we'll, we'll probably have to pay out of the levy. They're stating that if we don't have a certain number of users using Pet Presto, um, they've budgeted and allocated for a certain amount, it looks like, per municipality. If we don't meet those targets at the end of the year, 
we're on the hook for paying those costs. And so that $4 million that I referenced earlier uh, and, and the lead-up to that figure in 2027 will be a very costly and expensive one for the city, apart from the impact it will have on transit users. You know, we, we may see uh, a tax levy increase for those people who aren't using transit to pay for this provincial service. Well, just to clarify for people that, that may not know how the system works, uh, if transit ridership goes down, so does your gas tax allocation from the province, and, and, and that's going to have right. an impact on your budget. That's right. And, and later this year, we'll, we'll have, a, I think, an update, receive an update from our transit staff. We um, invested heavily into a new system that counts, automatically counts passengers getting on and off our transit system, our conventional transit system. And we'll have some very accurate numbers, uh, probably within a couple of months, that reflect, um, you know, what, how many people are using transit in the city. I think it even, you know, can, can tell us per route and uh, per geographic area. So I'm very interested see those numbers. And of course, if those numbers don't um, correlate to those that we've submitted in the past, um, then then we're in trouble as it as it relates to gas tax funding. And of course, the province has mentioned that they intend, if reelected, to um, to boost uh, provincial ta- gas tax dollars to municipalities. I think they're, they're migrating from two percent, two cents a liter to four cents. And uh, and we'll be the recipient of additional dollars through that uh, funding stream as well. Okay, but here's the concern here about ridership going down. Uh, that Obviously, so there are some people that are going to be in a financial situation to be able to use the Presto card, but is that really going to attract them to say, hey, I wasn't using public transit, but now I'm going to? Highly unlikely. But the low-income earners that are relying on public transit to get to job offers or whatever the case might be, Mm-hmm. are now going to say, well, I'm not so sure if this is accessible anymore. I may not be able to use this. So you're going to lose at the lower end there. The low-income uh, earners may not be able to access public transit anymore. And I don't see there's anything in the Presto announcement here that's going to make millennials say, wow, this is a great deal. Because, I mean, it's it's still the same system. It's just more costly, that's all. Yeah, and it couldn't come at a worse time. But again, you and I have had discussions about transit numbers in the past, and, and we're we're not just seeing it here in Hamilton. We're seeing it in other parts of Canada and across North America as it relates to, um, you know, transit ridership decline um, in large urban municipalities even. I mean, traditionally, you know, we've, we've seen peaks and valleys, but um, it, we've seen more valleys than peaks lately. And um, it looks like it may have plateaued for 216 and 217. And so we're hoping that, again, we're, transit will be on the rise and with some of the new investments we're going to make and have made over the years. Um, you know, we're hoping to attract a, a bigger and better customer base for us. And um, but but again, hard to do when you're you know making operational changes that, as you you pointed out, um, very succinctly, build that uh, affect our most marginalized and those who can least afford it. Let's talk about accessibility as far as the pass is concerned itself. And this is part of the thing that Metrolinx is trying to sell here is this affiliation now with Loblaw. And as you mentioned, that's that's wide-ranging because Loblaw is also shoppers. They own everything, it seems. Uh, they, of course, the people that were just uh, admitted to, to price-fixing with their bread, which doesn't really endear them to consumers these days. But let's, let's get that set aside for just a moment. Uh, I can think of a number of areas in this city right now, Chad, that have no Shoppers Drug Mart or Loblaw store anywhere near them. Uh, whereas the, the individual who may be using public transit right now can go and buy bus tickets at the corner store. Uh, that's going to be taken away from them now. If you can't, if you can't access the Presto card, you're not going to use transit. Yeah, and under that great point, and under the scenario that we're looking at this morning, Bill, um, you know, as you say, there there are small neighborhoods across the city. I use my beach beach neighborhood as an example. I don't uh, have there you go. Yeah, the beach strip, and I don't have uh, Shoppers Drug Mart. 
And so residents will be forced, in some cases, um, you know, to look elsewhere and, and maybe travel a distance uh, through their daily routine and, and pick up these passes um, in, in other areas. And, and it's much more convenient right now, I'm certain. I mean, there are far more variety stores in the city that are selling our, our bus tickets um, than, than there would be shoppers under the new system. And so convenience is definitely an issue for people. And I think there's there will be some concern from council today as it relates to, you know, what impact that has, again, on some of our most marginalized people who may not be as accessible um, as others who might be regularly riding the transit system or, um, you know, share share their rides between a, a vehicle they own and, and transit on days when they decide to, to park their car or truck in the driveway. So you've raised some very legitimate concerns, and I'm sure there'll be a wholesome debate about this at the committee meeting today, Chad, but the reality here is what choice, what wiggle room do you have? Well, that's the million-dollar question, and Bill, it, it's you know if if they're saying it's a get the funding or 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 not based on your participation, then I'm not certain what wiggle room we have, and, and I'm not certain what flexibility um, you know they've provided. I, I I read with interest the Metrolink's representative saying, well, you know we're not looking to insert ourselves here, and we're not looking to make it more difficult, and we're not taking away uh, you know passes or tickets from people. But when you follow the language. And they say you need to reach, I think, an 80% participation rate by 2021, which is just around the corner. And we're sitting at 25%. Um, you know, it's almost as if we have no choice but to, to take these things away in order to force people to get onto Presto to meet provincial guidelines and targets that they've established without consultation, certainly with, with, in the Hamilton community, uh, with our residents and transit users, and without consultation to council. And so... Um, very little wiggle room and lots of questions at this point, though. Well, I mean, this is a system, that, as we said, when it was instituted and announced many, many years ago now, I think a lot of people got excited about it, about easy access for transit. But clearly, there hasn't been a public uptake on that, and there are a lot of extraneous factors to that. It's not just the cost of the card and, and, and the, the implementation of that. Uh, it's still the age-old problem that Hamilton and a lot of other communities are facing right now, Chad, is that transit ridership is not going to go up until it becomes more accessible and more reliable, and that is going to take a huge infusion of cash. That's but right. this is a chicken and egg thing because the province understands that, but they're saying, yeah, but you can't get the cash unless your ridership goes up. Well, how are you going to do that? Yeah, and they've also given municipalities, I should note, Bill, the option of continuing with their current system, uh, but there's a cost to that. Um, staff have estimated that if we continue to use a system concurrent with Presto and we don't meet the, the 80% threshold, that we're probably looking at an, an annual cost of about a million dollars to run our own program. So it's um, it, it doesn't seem like um, you know, although they may have left the door open for municipalities to take advantage of that option, it's a costly and expensive one. And we'd much rather put those resources um, somewhere, uh, either within transit or, or other to other services, rather than duplicate services between the province and a municipally run one. We think the system that's out there right now works fairly well. And we think that over time, um, that you know, millennials and others that follow them will gravitate to a system that's more technical technologically advanced than the one we've accustomed to use to use over the last couple of decades and so it's just a matter of time before those numbers reach something maybe in the 70 percent 80 percent range but i think the 2021 deadline that they've established which is a very artificial one is one that um, certainly doesn't serve our community well and doesn't serve council well as it's trying to make its way through the 2018 budget just very quickly and i know this isn't is, uh, is on the report as well you pay about four hundred thousand dollars right now to uh, to Presto to be part of the system. The city pays Presto to do this. 
Uh, that cost is going to go up by about 10 times in the next few years, up by 2027 over to over $4 million. Mm-hmm. Where's that money going to come from? That comes, that comes from the levy. Or, or we have to find it within the system. And with all the discussions we've had about packed buses and making better investments in transit, uh, I, I certainly wouldn't want to take it out of the transit budget and, and reshuffle the deck and, and, and take it out of services and put it into this. It just doesn't make sense from a service delivery standpoint. So it most likely means, Bill, that the broader general public would, would pay those costs. And, of course, Metrolinx would argue, well, you're getting more gas tax uh, funding as a result, uh, and that's all well and good. But again, it's a slippery slope when, when governments, higher, higher level of governments, uh, end up putting these conditions on funding, which really, again, insert themselves into local decision-making process, which is, at least up until this date, has been the sole at the sole discretion of municipal councils. Well, sure, and then you're going to get a scenario where the, the province is going to give you the money, and you, before you even put it in your pocket, you're giving it out to that arm's-length agency. So, I mean, mm-hmm. you, you guys don't even get to touch it very long, and then it's gone again. Yeah, and I'd be surprised. I mean, there's been talk. I know the, the Conservative um, Party, the last election, talked about disbanding Metrolinx and, and possibly taking those services back in-house. Traditionally, you know, up until Metrolinx was created, those are decisions that have been made by the government or by the minister or by the ministry. And so I'll be interested to see what happens through the provincial election and, and, and what follows um, for organizations like Metrolinx, where there's been some question, of course, has been was reported last week. Their two most senior people, I think, in the organization left. So lots of changes at the provincial level, and I wouldn't be surprised if the new government um, that that takes their seats at Queens Park later this year, um, you know, puts that organization back under the microscope to say, is this the best possible way to govern transit, not just across southern Ontario, but across the province. Good luck with this, Chad. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks, Bill. Chad Collins, Councillor for Ward Five, uh, very concerned and legitimately so about some of the uh, the Presto initiatives that uh, Metrolinx is, uh, well, basically trying to force onto municipalities. And there is a cost to you and me as taxpayers. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The uh, minimum wage here in the province of Ontario increased uh, as of the beginning of the new year. We all know that story. It's been well documented. It's the first of a phased-in program to bring the minimum wage to $15 an hour here in the province of Ontario. And uh, there have been some wrinkles and some pushbacks on this program as it has evolved over the last little while. Of course, the uh, Tim Horton situation from uh, just a few days ago continues to make news because of the uh, information we received that some of the franchisees were actually going to start cutting benefits to employees to try to, what they said, deal with the implications of the minimum wage. Yet, despite some of the pushback that we've heard about, Uh, Public opinion polls suggest that the majority of Ontarians actually still support the idea of raising the minimum wage. They like this idea. They like the program. Well, the uh, the minister in charge of the implementation, Minister of Labor for the province of Ontario, uh, the Honourable Kevin Flynn, is with us here in studio to talk about this. Uh, Great to see you. Thanks again for coming in today. My pleasure, Bill. Thanks for having me. Well, we've done a few phone conversations. You've been a pretty busy guy over the last little while, but I know you're in town today for some other business, too. So. Uh, I'm glad we could hook up for a few minutes to talk about this. Give me uh, your read on, on on what has gone on since January the 1st. I mean, as I, I mentioned in a commentary I did the other day, uh, there are still some people that want to debate whether or not this should be happening, and, and that horse has left the barn. I mean, it's been passed into legislation. It's been implemented. It's the new reality. Uh, some people are still trying to fight that battle right now, and I guess that's the nature of politics. But even when you look at, at what's gone on here, for instance, uh, in this an election year in Ontario, uh, both opposition leaders, both Patrick Brown and Andrea Horvath, 
have said that had they be, if they win this next election, uh, they're going to keep this. Uh, they're, there's, they're, they seem to see that this is final right now. I'm not so sure that everybody in the public is ready to accept that. What are you hearing? Well, I'm hearing from the vast majority of Ontarians support the idea that if you work 35 or 40 hours a week, Bill, that you're entitled to the basics in life. You're entitled to pay your rent, buy food, put shoes on the kids' feet, those normal things that are involved with raising a family. Uh, People understand, I think, that over the years, since 2008, 2009, uh, pretty big financial scare during those years. People kind of retreated a little bit. But they understand that I think that those those of us that are working at the the lower end of the income scale were falling further and further behind every year. So despite the fact we had a good process in place for raising the minimum wage, it really wasn't keeping up with inflation, with the cost of living. I think people around Ontario, whichever side of the issue you're on, on this understood intuitively that something needed to be done that people people don't move to Ontario uh, to live in poverty they move here to work hard when they work hard the price of that is that you at least get to uh, you at least get to afford the basics but as you saw that evolving and as your government saw that evolving why didn't they act sooner why wait until now well, we had a good process in place. You have to think you go back to 2008, 2009, everybody was a little uncertain about the economy. A, a lot of people lost a good percentage of their retirement savings. Uh, the banking system worldwide was looked like it was a little iffy. Scary times for an awful lot of people. So the economic recovery from that, I think, uh, at, some point, uh, at some point it didn't recover as quickly as uh, we would have liked it to. Since that time, of course, the Ontario economy is booming now. I mean, we're leading the G7 economic growth, lowest unemployment we've seen in years. And I think people thought, well, this is time. This is is the opportunity to make things right. What we're seeing, I think, around the world and certainly in North America is we started to see a very growing disparity between those that are doing really, really well and the people at the lower end of the the, economy. of the income level were falling further and further behind. So that that middle class that we were famous for in Canada uh, was starting to become eroded. We we needed to act on that. So we had a great process in place. So the real fact of the matter is that when we established the baseline in 2011, it was established too low. But with that in mind, was was the determination made then, Minister, that well, the uh, the small businesses can absorb this now. They can they can take that because you with every action, there's going to be a reaction. You knew there were going to be implications. Well, I think when you make this type of a move, and uh, you expect there's going to be a variety of opinions, so we we didn't uh, we didn't do it without going out there and listening to people that knew what they were talking about. And uh, the vast majority of economists, the prevailing view in the economic community is that this is a very good thing for the economy that there often is displacement when you get this type of, uh, when you make these types of moves, there's shifting, there's adjustments that to, uh, that need to be made. But each and every time, even the Bank of Canada came up with a report the other day that was saying, well, you know, there may be some jobs that you may have got before that you won't get now, but you'll get other jobs. You'll get better jobs. And they also said that overall, this is of real benefit to the Ontario economy and it's the route we should be traveling. And that's the, uh, that's the prevailing economic view. I come from small business. I know how challenging it is to run a small business. And uh, I know there's times when it seems like everybody gets paid but you as the owner. The banks get paid. The employees get paid. But uh, Ontario business is doing very, very well right now. Ontario economy is doing very, very well right now. If there was a time to make this adjustment to bring people into the fold, 
it's today. But we've seen, I've seen those reports, but you juxtapose those, Minister, with some of the other predictions, dire or not, from places like the Conference Support of Canada, the, the, the Center for Independent Business, that are saying, no, this is going to cause massive job loss in the province of Ontario. You've got to you pay attention to those numbers. Uh, maybe not believe them, but they, those, those reports have to be addressed. Oh, absolutely. You pay attention to them. You certainly you don't ignore them, but I think you've got to, when you get, when you get a difference of opinion, what you have to do is you have to balance those opinions. You have to look, which one of these is probably the most accurate? Which one of these is probably going to be the outcome. If all the economists said exactly the same thing, it would be easy. But what happens is you get a variety of views. And you look at predictions that have been made in the past. I looked at the Fraser Institute. Last time we saw this type of a change of this magnitude was in British Columbia. And the Fraser Institute was was predicting or projecting exactly the same things that are they're forecasting today that we were going to see an awful lot of job loss. It just didn't come true. And in fact, exactly the opposite happened. What we saw was increased economic growth. We saw increased employment. Any projection, any forecast uh, that I've seen for the province of Ontario in uh, the upcoming years shows increased job growth. There's going to be more jobs. We're, you know, we're leading. We're leading the country when it comes to economic growth. We're leading the uh, G7, as I said earlier. The, these are these are good times. If you're going to make a move, I think this is the time to make it. The argument against, even from chambers of commerce and some of these organizations, was, yeah, we don't disagree. Uh, this is probably a good thing to happen, but too much too soon and too too fast for small businesses to absorb this. Well, I I can understand that they would prefer. I, I should mention before you finish your answer. Uh, that to that point, uh, Patrick Brown has said that if he wins the election, he's going to keep the $14, but he will not institute phase two, at least not immediately, if ever. So so there is that pushback and that response to, to that mindset. Well, you know, the opposition parties, I think, have been all, all over the place on this. And certainly the NDP at one point was calling for a $12 minimum wage, now is supporting us on the 14 or 15, and that's great to see that. The uh, progressive conservatives voted against the implementation of uh, Bill 148. Now, I've heard some of their, their members are quite supportive of it. I saw them vote against it in the House, and now I've seen them included in their People's Guarantee, I think they're calling it, or some sort of manifesto they have out right now that is their platform. So I, I really don't know where they've landed. I, I don't know what they would do. It really is unpredictable. Um, we've tried to implement it in a way that... Uh, that it couldn't be changed in any event. We've tried to draft the legislation in a way that it is coming, that we're going to move towards a living wage in the province of Ontario. We're going to $14 an hour. And I don't think that's too much too quick. I, th- I think when you think that people were living, uh, w- you know, were working 35 and 40 hours a week and were not being able to afford the basics each and every month, Every month that went by, these folks fall, fell further and further and further behind. So we, I think implementing it over two fiscal years is a responsible way to go. You know, you have to think that a living wage in Hamilton's close to $16 an hour. When you look around uh, places around the province of Ontario, I think you may find one little pocket in Ontario and southwest Ontario where the living wage is less than $15 an hour. So this is moving us towards a living wage. And... Uh, that's why it was phased in, really, was to accommodate uh, the adjustments a business would have to make. Yeah, there are some economists, and I know you've heard from the minister, 
uh, that say, and you've used the phrase living wage, that that's the best way to do, to attack uh, low income and to attack poverty. And in fact, your government is instituting on a pilot project a living wage program. Hamilton's one of the test cases for it. That's right. Uh, that that puts the onus on government, uh, whether it's income supplements or living wage programs, or whatever they, the, the the government decides to do, as opposed to putting the onus on the private sector to try to come up with uh, the money to do these sorts of things. Uh, you're, you're doing both right now. Uh, some suggesting, well, you should be focusing more on government intervention as opposed to small business pressure. I think there's a dignity and there's a respect, Bill, that goes along with being able to, you know, put in 35, 40 hours a week at, uh, you know, at a job and to earn your own way. That's, one ter- that's what Ontario has always been about. That's what Canada has always been about. There are some people where employment is an issue. It could be for a variety of reasons. It could be, uh, it could be um, something physical. It could be intellectual. There's a there's a variety of reasons where people out there cannot put in 35 or 40 hours a week, but still have the same expenses that uh, that you or I do. That's where a guaranteed income comes in, I think. That's where that really comes to the forefront as a uh, a potential uh, to ensure that everybody can, you know, can live a decent life in the province. But when it comes to working in the private sector or the public sector, to going out, to getting out of bed in the morning, to going to work, to doing your share, I think there's a respect and a dignity that goes along with earning a paycheck. And that paycheck should allow you to live a basic life, and whether it's in Hamilton, whether it's in Toronto. You should be able to pay your rent, put food on the table, buy clothes for the kids. We used to think of the minimum wage as a student wage, and it certainly is not that anymore. But a third of people in the province of Ontario now make less than $15 an hour. Over half of those people are between the ages of 25 and 64. So these guys aren't saving up for uh, for new bikes or a new skateboard. What no, these people the phrase, are trying to do is they're trying to raise families. Yeah, a lot of people have used that phrase, entry-level jobs. And it, you just walk inside a coffee shop and... Uh, some of these other places. These these are seniors or in some cases adults that are working a second job to try to make ends meet. Exactly. So th- they have to be factored in. But l- l- let me ask you about the formula because there's always going to be pushback, as you mentioned, when you decide, okay, this is what we're going to do, and some suggesting that, that the government's moved too quickly on this. Why not develop a formula uh, for a natural implementation like they do with other programs tied to the cost of living, things of that nature, so so that we, we know when it's going to happen, we know the formula that's going to be used as opposed to having this debate every time. Well, Bill, that's exactly what we're doing, and that's where I said before we had a good process in place. After 2011, what we did is we pegged the minimum wage to, uh, to the CPI, to the uh, Consumer Price Index. So on April the 1st of a given year, the government would would look back at the preceding year and say inflation was 1.8 last year. Therefore, the minimum wage will be going up October the 1st of that year by the same amount. People loved it. It was predictable. It was fair. The problem was when we set the baseline, we set the baseline way too low. So we're keeping that system in place. So uh, it will go to $14 an hour January 1st of this year. It already has. $15 an hour the following year. And then the April, in the uh, month of April of 2019, we'll take a look back at the Consumer Price Index for 2018, and we'll increase it by whatever that is, by that rate of inflation. That will come into effect in October of that year. So we're we're going to get the best of both worlds here. We're going to get a living wage, and we're going to get a good process that's fair to business and is predictable for business and is fair to people as well. So that's going to happen. It's just this is this is you're playing catch up here. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we, the process that um, allows it to increase by the rate of inflation is something that makes an awful lot of sense, and it takes a lot of the politics out of it. 
What we don't have, what we didn't establish properly, I think, in 2011, is we didn't uh, establish a proper baseline. So people started off too low, and they remained low, and they f- and they fell further and further behind. The new process we have in place allows people to be paid fairly and to keep up with the rate of inflation. How do you respond to businesses that are are making statements, and more importantly, I guess, already enacting policies that could be dealt uh, uh, deemed, uh, I guess, as not just controversial, but at the same time harmful to their employees. I mean, we've heard the the Hortons stories about uh, benefits being cut. We've heard about price increases. Are, are you monitoring that? Are you looking at what's going on? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we're keeping our eye on that type of thing. And obviously, we don't like to see that. I mean, we think it can be dealt with um, differently. I think we may have got ourselves caught up in an argument between franchisees and franchisors when you're using the Tim Hortons um, example. Certainly uh, the corporate policy of Tim Hortons is to pay for breaks, paid breaks. It's right there in black and white. That's what franchisees are expected to do. Uh, So there's a bit of a debate as to how to adjust to this, but you're not hearing it from a lot of other restaurants. You're not hearing it from uh, competitors. They're just dealing with it. I haven't seen any huge price increases. I haven't seen any huge layoffs. I mean, we're only a few weeks into this. But every prediction I saw is that when you inject that sort of money into the economy, when you get people, when you get that many people, almost a third of working Ontarians received some sort of a pay increase over the past couple of weeks. When those paychecks start being opened, and that will start happening this week and next and at the end of the month, that money's going right back into the Ontario economy very, very quickly. People are going to start spending more money. Are you concerned about a boomerang effect, though? Uh, we've heard this before the implementation, that, that some uh, employers, or employees for that matter, are going to say, look, if you raise the minimum wage, then I deserve a raise, too. I was making 18 bucks an hour, but I want to pay up to 20 now because you've just increased theirs. By, by a substantial amount. Is there a concern? Because that obviously leads to an inflationary situation, which is not going to do anybody any good. I think you'll see see some of that. I, I've, I've heard people say, well, if people are coming in at $15 an hour, perhaps I deserve a little bit more myself. Um, people expect to raise every year, I think, in the province of Ontario. It's quite natural. You know, people uh, expect to be able to, uh, to keep up with the uh, with the rate of inflation. But when you look around uh, the world or you look around North America especially and you look at examples of where this has taken place, we haven't seen those types of displacements. We've seen we've seen adjustments that sort of have to be made, but the doom and gloom predictions that some are making, uh, I just don't think are ever going to come to pass. Ontario Minister of Labor, uh, Kevin Flynn, uh, great to have you with us in studio again. Thanks so much for the time today. Appreciate it. I know we'll stay in touch as uh, this rolls out in the uh, the months ahead. Absolutely, Bill. Always a pleasure to be here. Always a pleasure to be in Hamilton. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.